0: I want to talk about the role of disappointment in the Christian life and my sense that it plays oftentimes a controlling role in our lives and part of what is controlling about it is its unacknowledged nature, that each of us are in different ways gripped by disappointments uh, that determine the course of our lives and part of that determination, part of that power Is precisely that we don't know it plays that role. I want to return us to two points from the sermon last week, um, just because they will return uh, this time. The two kind of major things I was hoping people would walk away with is, first, that the gospel is the kind of thing that both draws us in, into the life of Christ, into the logic and trajectory and the agenda of the gospel, It's the kind of thing that draws us in, yet simultaneously can repulse us out. That Christ calls us in, but we tend to be lurkers, and we stay outside of the promise of the gospel. I talked about this in terms of how oftentimes, like Judas, the betrayal is one of lurking. And in such a way that the betrayal is both a betrayal of Jesus but a betrayal of the gospel itself. And in some sense, therefore, a betrayal of our own best lights, our own best intentions, a betrayal of what we know to be best for us. I talked about this in terms of money, which was probably not surprising given the DNA of this church, given the DNA of what the gospel says about money, generally not positive. But I also talked about it in terms of children and how in our life with our children, that life can betray and in some sense compromise uh, what the gospel calls us to. It's just the day-to-day life, say what I described last week, is the fears that you did not know you had until you had children and about how all of your life with your children can be in maintenance in answer to those fears. There was a Uh, short-term podcast by the New York Times last year that described the life of very progressive, liberal, anti-racist women in New York City. And the podcast talked about the extreme contradiction between these women and their commitments to their families and their commitments to black and brown children in the city of New York How much they are both committed to that and yet live lives of what sociologists called opportunity hoarding, that they would send their kids to kinds of schools, that they would invest their tax dollars, that they would do the kinds of things that would inadvertently and maybe unwittingly bring direct harm to black and brown children. And why did they do this? Because at the fore of their minds was the safety of their own children. And you see how our love for our children can betray even our most important commitments. I do also want to say, though, that our children can save us from ourselves. That there is a good of our life with children if we let our children do that. If we don't, say, curse our children with our expectations, but allow the possibility of who the Spirit is making them to become, to draw us out of our own worst tendencies, to let fears control our life. I take it that that's part of what this church is doing in prioritizing and foregrounding uh, the practices of foster care and adoption. I mean, we should acknowledge that just from the go that the con- that the concepts of adoption and foster care are the driving concepts of child care in the New Testament. So it should already be the case, just in terms of the scriptures, that something like adoption should be the default position in relationship to children. That the burden should not be on those who adopt, but those who have children otherwise. Um, And it's a distortion of our world that it often goes the other way. But I take it that the practice is like having a class about the goods of foster care. Or about the number of folks in this congregation who have adopted or come from adopted families. The attempt to normalize that practice is the attempt to claim children in a way that will help us save us from ourselves. The other thing I want to draw from last week is that the gospel is the kind of thing that these goods and truths and beauty of the gospel, ironically and sometimes painfully, can only be seen from the inside. And that from the lurker outside position, we often don't know the goodness to which Christ calls us. I get this from uh, the, the theologian, the 20th century theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer is famous for both his theology and the way he pits his theology against the Nazi terror in the 1930s and 40s. We also know that Bonhoeffer, for his commitments, For his campaign against the Nazi campaign of terror was martyred. He was murdered, uh, executed just days before the Allied um, uh, victory. The legend goes that as Bonhoeffer is being taken to be executed, literally as he is walking to be executed, he says to those who could hear, for me, this is the end, the beginning of life. That is a goodness and a truth and a beauty that you only know and understand from the inside, the very heart of the gospel. And that is the strange, ironic, and often painful nature of our lives, that the best of what we have can only be seen by having it. So let's turn to disappointment, and these themes will return, hopefully. So we are uh, continuing the series um, that pastors Malcolm and Slim have called mixtapes. That is, they're taking different parts of the gospel uh, beyond the gospel of John and these different uh, discrete moments in the life of Jesus. Well, if these are the mixtapes, then to get to Judas, we get, have to get to the B-sides of the mixtapes. You don't often hear or think about Judas. Judas is often the very opposite Example of the Christian life. And certainly throughout scripture and the tradition, Judas is not treated kindly. In Luke and John, not only is Judas always mentioned as the one who will betray Jesus, but he's often referred to or referenced to devils and demons. In Luke and John, sometimes he's referenced in relationship to Satan. Sometimes he's called a devil, and on a couple occasions, there's a suggestion that he is the devil. Obviously, strong words. In Acts, in Acts chapter 1, we have a picture of Judas both killing himself, and the writer of Luke, Acts, feels it's necessary to describe the suicide in extremely gruesome detail as if the writer can only think about Judas in the terms of disdain. Why else would you portray the suicide in such brutal, humiliating way, except for to articulate your utter disdain for Judas? This disdain continues in the theological tradition, what the tradition is often said about Judas. John Christendom, one of the early church fathers, describes Judas as Almost at the point of kissing Jesus, repenting, but then describing the the devil getting into him and driving him to suicide. The the logic being for John, something like, he would have been saved, but the devil finally got him in the end. Dante reserves the deepest pits of hell for Judas. Judas. You go through all the different layers of hell, all the terrible things that humankind, and Judas is at the bottom of it, at the worst of it. Calvin describes Judas as, quote, wholly given over to Satan. Da Vinci, you may have noticed from The Last Supper, the famous painting, The Last Supper, there's Jesus, there's the disciples, and then there's Judas, And you might not have seen the very fine detail, right, that where Judas is, there's there's a cup of spilled salt. From that day forward within the medieval church, it was always understood, if you spill salt, bad luck, because you're associated with Judas. So Judas, both in scripture and in tradition, is not viewed or looked upon kindly, often with disdain often associated with the worst parts of our human nature. But more recent times have offered more sympathetic readings of Judas. And this follows early elements in some parts of the early part of the uh, Christian tradition. For example, origin seems to suggest some possibilities of salvation for Judas. In the uh, musical, many of you may know, Jesus Christ Superstar... Judas is presented very sympathetically, and that musical itself, right, was borrowing on a theme uh, from a Bob Dylan song. In Jesus Christ Superstar, the suggestion is the reason Judas betrays Jesus is precisely because he loves Jesus so much. Another more recent rendition of the attempt to read Judas sympathetically comes from U2, um, the The, uh, the band. In the in the song The End of the World, they say this about Judas and those last scenes with Jesus. The last time we met was a low-lit room, low-lit room. We were as close together as a bride and groom. We ate the food, we drank the wine, everybody having a good time. Except for you, you were talking about the end of the world. In Bono and U2's rendition, you have this amazing disconnect between the celebration of the world and Jesus beholden and fixated on his own death. U2 suggesting that it's something about this disconnect that leads Judas to betray him. So how are we to think about this? How do we think about Judas? Judas. As I said last week, I want to try to read, in the same way I read Judas critically last week, I want to try to read Judas sympathetically. I want to try to imagine what led him to the betrayal. And mind you, in doing so, I'm not trying to excuse away what scripture and the tradition considers one of the most consequential sins in the history of creation. I'm not trying to excuse that. Rather, I'm trying to contextualize it. And why do we do so? Because the best reading we can have of Judas is not simply sympathetically, but to imagine his life and ours somehow entwined. That there is a reason that Judas has a role in the Gospels. Every time the 12 are mentioned, Judas is always mentioned. It's not the attempt to forget. It's the attempt to put at the very center of the Gospel this character. And what I want to try to do is think with him. And to imagine our lives somehow connected to his. Because the betrayal of Judas, as I tried to say last week, we play some role in that. And so trying to sympathize with Judas is the attempt at some level to make sense of our own lives. So let's go to our scripture passage. In Mark chapter 14 and the first 10 verses, um, what you have is a kind of police procedural right police procedurals are something like a whodunit so there's a crime at the beginning and the rest of the procedural is who did it who committed the crime who did who committed the murder but in this case it's like one of those episodes when you know from the beginning who did it it's judas the question the drama the narrative arc is on the question well why did he do it Right? And, and the gospel set Judas up exactly like this. Throughout, they always present Judas as the betrayer. The question is, by the time we get to Mark 14, why? Given all the goodness and beauty and truth that Jesus is, why? Why betray? Do we have the scripture passage? Thank you. So let me point out several important features in how Mark presents Judas. And these is verses one and two. Now the Passover and the festival of the unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him. Verses one and two give us two critical things. First, this was the Passover. The Passover is the most consequential event in Jewish spiritual life. It is the highest holy holiday. It is the mark of the beginning of the covenantal life between the Hebrews and Jesus. The fulfillment of what Abraham has on the fulfillment of what God has for the entire world through Israel. We all remember the Exodus event. The Exodus event is the one by which God calls God calls God's people out of slavery and frees them by the Passover lamb. That is, God's going to rain this event onto the Egyptians, but he's going to save all of his people by way of the Paschal lamb who is slaughtered, and everyone that has the mark, that bears the mark of that lamb is set free. This becomes the defining story of Jewish life, and it is very much the story... That is adopted by the New Testament theology. And so we begin with this as the context. When Mark says this is the beginning of the betrayal. This is the beginning of the last days of Christ. This is the beginning of the drama of the crucifixion and resurrection. Mark is trying to indicate to us there are no higher stakes. To then to set this story in the, con- then in the story of the Passover event. So already we know from Mark these are super high stakes. The second thing we see is that the Jewish leaders, the teachers of the law, were scheming to kill Jesus. You remember from last week, I said that Mark is, has, Mark is um, kind of ordered by a narrative arc. In the first half of Mark, more people are coming around Jesus. Jesus is doing a miracle things, a miracle miracles, hanging around amazing human beings, teaching amazing things. The crowds are gathering around him. The second half of Mark, things go steadily and rapidly downhill. What were crowds becomes increasing isolation. What began as life-giving teaching becomes increasingly weird and dark. Right? What began as a revolution ends in the isolation of crucifixion. And within this arc, right, say from a party to a funeral is the religious teachers, the the captains, say, the stewards of a spiritual political economy. And what they began to realize is that Jesus' teaching and actions increasingly threatened this world. And so the need to kill him was both the need of a vengeance against this individual figure, but also the need to preserve the world and its orders. That's the scene. The Passover and the scheming. What's the trigger? In the next verses, in verse 3, we come across a woman with an alabaster jar. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? We could spend an entire sermon just on this part of the story. But what we know is that what unfolds in the midst of the scheming and the Passover is a woman comes to Jesus, she comes with an alabaster jar. What we need to know about the alabaster jar is what the scripture tells us. It was extremely valuable, right, as the scripture says, worth an entire year's salary. An alabaster jar, both the beauty of the alabaster jar and the beauty of that which was in it, right? We're not talking about a beautiful jar and Axe body spray, (laughs) right? We're talking about an amazing thing, both the inside and the outside, in this scene, she breaks off the top, the nature of the alabaster jars. You had to, once you opened it, it was done. It was like an incredible uh, bottle of wine. You opened it, you're going to use it. She breaks it open, and then in an incredibly odd scene, she begins to anoint Jesus with the ointment and her hair. And in this scene, right, you're asking what in the world is going on. Everyone in the scene, right, is wondering what in the world is going on. But it's not so much, right, that what she does and the people's response, right, they began to rebuke her harshly by saying, we could have used this for much better things. For example, the money from the alabaster jar, we could have sold that and gave to the poor. I mean, didn't you yourself, Jesus, say things like that? And so the drama of the story, it's reaching its head. course we're not quite sure what to do uh, with the response of the people in the room do they mean in good faith that we could have used the alabaster jar and its value for the poor or are they simply trying to trip jesus up are they simply complaining what we do know is this is jesus's response leave her alone why are you bothering her she has done a beautiful thing to me Jesus goes on to say, the poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. I think there's a little, you could be helping them now if you wanted to. Don't use her as the occasion to bring it up. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare my body for burial. And it's this next part that really takes the cake for people in the room. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Right, so you have the Passover, you have the scheming, you have the alabaster jar woman doing the anointing of Jesus in this incredibly strange, socially awkward moment. But really what becomes the trigger point for Judas, what kind of throws him off, what puts him off, what finally is for him the straw that breaks the camel's back is what Jesus says about what just happened. And, wh- and what is it that Jesus says? He seems to be saying three things. One, I'm going to die. I'm going to die as the Passover lamb, and to be the Passover lamb is to die. It is, in the, pa- in the, in the words of John the Baptist, I am the lamb here to take away the sins of the world. Lambs in the sacrificial logic of the Passover dies. So the first thing... I'm gonna die. Two, she has it right, which means you all don't have it right. She understands something. She is inside the gospel. She is inside discipleship in a way that you all consider foolishness. She has it right, and you don't have it right. Notice that part of the power, part of the rebuke there is that the person who has it right is a she. And the third thing is, for the rest of creation history, whenever the gospel is told, it will be told in terms of her. That she has it so right that she fully understands who I am, that I am going to die, that I am the lamb, that I need to be anointed. That she has this right so well that she has seized into the heart, onto the heart of the gospel so truthfully and powerfully and beautifully That wherever the gospel goes, she does. Wherever the story of God goes, she does. This apparently drives Judas nuts. Whatever was stirring in the lurking heart of Judas before, this takes him over the edge. Now, we could speculate what about this scene and what about what Jesus says about the scene, these three things... Puts him over the edge. Let me offer a few that we might consider. Maybe what drives Judas nuts, what makes him want Jesus turned over to the authorities, is simply the cultural inappropriateness of it. Maybe that's what drives him nuts. Maybe it's the wasted money. Maybe similar to the scene that uh, Pastor Slim preached a couple weeks ago, it's simply the prodigality of it. the, The sheer wastefulness of the scene. Maybe Judas really loves the poor, right? Maybe like some of you in this room, he gives his life to the poor in a way that the, the sheer waste of the money, right, really gets into his crawl. Maybe it's the alabaster jar woman herself. Maybe he had seen her around. Maybe she, he knew she was exactly the kind of character that would ruin whatever Judas and the disciples had with Jesus. Maybe Judas realized that Jesus was really dangerous. Imagine a situation where you live in a country and you see the country going downhill. You join a group of people who promise to put it back on track. And you realize about these people that they're treasonous people. What do you do? You go tell the FBI about what's happening. Maybe that's what's happening for brother Judas. Maybe Judas loved Jesus. And he simply did not want him to die. Maybe Judas was committed to the pi- a picture of the Messiah in a way that oftentimes in Jewish apocalyptic culture, people thought the Messiah was going to be the one that would militarily, politically, in revolution, liberate Israel. And in Jesus saying, I'm going to die, that dream would not be fulfilled. Or maybe what bothered Judas was Jesus' claim that Israel would be liberated precisely by his death? Maybe that's what threw him off. The answer is we don't know. We can speculate all we want. One of the things that Christianity or Christian theology says about sin is that sin ultimately is not sin. Ultimately, comes without explanation. There is no rational explanation for sin, especially the gravest sin. Sin, by its nature, by its metaphysics, is an inclination towards unreason, non-being. So to try to explain it is to explain the inexplicable. So we don't know. We can simply imagine the features of human life that might contribute to this. Let me offer one description. What if it was disappointment? What if disappointment in the scene or from the scene or from the life of Jesus got into the heart of Judas and intermixed in such a way that doesn't explain what he did but helps us understand the context of what he did? I know some of you are thinking disappointment can't possibly play that role. That disappointment cannot be so great, or any single disappointment be so great, as to drive Judas to do what Judas did, that goes down through the annals of history as what Judas did. But my suspicion is that for those of us who do not think disappointment can play that role, part of that comes from us not coming to terms with the role disappointment plays in our own lives, of not having taken stock of the controlling power of disappointment and in probably in some of our cases and certainly mine in the way that I've made a home with disappointment and come to live with it in a way that fails to acknowledge its controlling presence and power in my own life. What is disappointment? I think it's pretty simple. I think disappointment is made up of three features of human existence. One. That we're the kinds of beings or creatures who live in time and recognize we live in time, right? Whether we live in time and recognize the temporal natures of our life is because we know we're dying and therefore we know about time. Or rather, because we know about time, we know about death. Either way, we are creatures who are temporally indexed to the world. We understand our lives in terms of time. Two, we're the kinds of creatures who, because we live in time, through time, in relationship to time are constantly projecting ourselves into the future. So it's the temporal nature of our lives plus the practices of projection that meet a third element, that the world is finite, that it is limited, that not every way we project ourselves in the future will or can be realized. But these are three inevitable, inescapable features of human existence, that we are temporal creatures, that we project ourselves in time, and that we meet the finitude of the world that set us up, all of us, every one of us, every day, for disappointment. This is an inescapable feature of human existence. And let me give you an example of a mundane kind of disappointment to give you the idea of how disappointment works in regular life. Back when I was, uh, had recently graduated with co- uh, from college, I was like a lot of recent college students not very wealthy. In fact, I was quite poor. I also loved food, like a lot of recent college students. Those realities often met and came to an head that I was constantly hungry and looking for good food. So the good food I could afford back back then and which I really relished uh, was hot dogs. Hot dogs are very cheap. Uh, You could buy hot dogs in, you know, plentiful amounts and eat a lot of hot dogs. And I would make my hot dogs the best hot dogs you can imagine. I was poor, but I was going to have some pretty good hot dogs. I remember one day, I was having lunch at home by myself, and I made myself a plate of three amazing hot dogs. Now you're wondering yourself, what counts as three amazing hot dogs, right? First of all, they weren't just hot dogs, they were like sausage dogs. I don't know if there's actually a difference, but they sell it as a difference, and apparently I believed it. Three sausage dogs right? I roasted them in the oven, right? The bread was perfectly toasted. And it wasn't just ketchup. It was, you know, relish and onions and tomatoes and all kinds of wonderful sauces. I hope at this point you all are longing for hot dogs to set you up for the disappointment. (laughs) So I, it must have been 20, 25 minutes to make these hot dogs. I put them on a plate and as I used to do in those days, I would make my meal and then I would go upstairs and Uh, read or watch TV or what have you in my room. As I was walking up the stairs, I caught my foot on the staircase, hands went in the air, hot dogs and hot dog sauces all over the walls. The sense of defeat was immediate. The deflation instantaneous. You see how it works. I'm a temporal creature. My hunger is indexed to time. I project a future in which I'm eating my hot dogs. It meets the buzzsaw of finitude. The hot dogs are all over the wall on the floors. The nature of our lives is to be set up for disappointments of this kind. But of course, the disappointments that matter to us are much more significant than spilled hot dogs. We can go from the relationship of time, infinitude, right, and projection and expectation and mundane events like a spilled meal to the much more tremendous and disruptive and often catastrophic ways that disappointment can devastate our lives. Let me offer two examples. Careers. Many, many people in this room are setting up for the careers that they expect, that they've projected, that they've imagined having. These are, for all of you, in preparation, dreams. Sometimes these dreams are explicit. You think about them. You imagine them. You plan for them. At all times, they are implicit. That's why you're here at Baylor. That's why you're here in Waco. That's why you're in this graduate program, right? Your careers are, in a sense... The dreams you're oriented, the, the, the ways your life, the direction your life is heading. What happens when those, disappoint, those dreams meet disappointment? A few years ago, I was approached by another university to uh, pursue a job that I would have described at the time a dream job. It was an elite university, the kind of university that one always tries to imagine oneself getting to, even if one realizes one may never do so. It's just the kind of dream job you have. When I was approached, the people that approached me said, "Uh, this is your job to lose, right? There's no way you're not going to get this job. They said, this is going to be the easiest decision our faculty has ever made in bringing another faculty member on. You're made for this job. And so naturally, I start dreaming toward it. And in the weeks and months, into the job application, I start to project into the future. I even do the thing when I get on Zillow or these real estate companies and start looking at houses. I imagine my life with students. I imagine myself in this part of the country. I imagine myself, my family, my kids growing up there, my wife and I growing old there. It didn't turn out like they said. I I won't get into the gory details of what happened. But they, the people who said, this is your job to lose, I lost it. For years, this dominated the way I thought about everything, the way I looked at my colleagues at the university I was working at, the way I thought about my students, the resentments that built up. I began to realize the frustrations I had towards other people were frustrations maybe towards them, but there are frustrations of having your life turn out differently than you wanted, differently than you imagined. I realized that I could focus all my anger on what happened and the people involved. But was I, what I was unwilling or unable to do was simply meet and acknowledge the reality that my, my life had faced an extreme disappointment, that things had not turned out like I had hoped. And I realized that I could, for my entire career, let this disappointment control and dominate my life. I think sometimes when we think about that coworker who seems always grouchy, always angry, always complaining, and she or he has done this for what seems like a decade or two, my guess is if you dig down deep enough, you're going to find something like disappointment driving it. Another source of extraordinary disappointment in the human life is children. We live in a society that idolizes children. This is this idolization and these expectations and their requisite disappointments are pressures especially visited upon women. There is the idea, right, and it's projected everywhere in our society. From movies to books to commercials, the images that determine social media in our lives, that what you are as a woman is someone here to have children. And that your happiness and your identity is built up in that project and maybe that project alone. There's certain realities of our bodies that biochemically, at certain parts, our bodies just want children. And so it's not simply social expectations, but it's somewhat natural in a sense, to want children. And even if you didn't want children, you look all around you, and people are having children. Let's say you decided in your 20s, maybe you and your partner, your husband, you decide, "Uh, we want to do other things. But everyone else around you, what are they doing? Having children, talking about children, planning around children. And so the projection, the expectations around children can then be met with sometimes children and sometimes not. And what happens with the entire projection of your life meets the finite reality that not everyone can or does have children. And you can imagine the controlling pain and power that children can play in your lives. In each of these cases, right, careers, vocation, children, they're often spiritually weighed in a way that makes the pain even greater. In the scriptures, not having children, what's often called barrenness, is often indication, at least in the Old Testament, that God is not with you. God is with Israel insofar as Israel has children. Them not having children is often indication that maybe God isn't with you. Now, there are reasons that the New Testament fulfills in the one given child, Christ, that expectation. But if you're raised in Christianity, it can be the case that the promise of children becomes an incredibly powerful burden. A site of extraordinary disappointment. Same thing with our jobs. Those of you who are called to a particular job and training right now, part of what you think you're doing insofar as you're Christians is you think God has called you to it. And what happens when you don't get the job? What happens when the career doesn't work out like you thought it would? The nature of serious disappointment is that you might call what disappointment is, how you might describe it, as the death of a dream, the loss of an imagined future. And there is a temptation here to say, well, if it's a death, it's a small death. But I don't think that's quite true. Some philosophers even say that the pain of what death is isn't the cessation of life that happens for everyone, and for most of us, we won't be around when that happens for us. The pain of death is disappointment of a lost and imagined future with yourself or someone you you love. The other part in pain of disappointment is its utterly unacknowledged reality. Most of us live with disappointments. And the nature of disappointment is that you meet the disappointment. You don't get the job. You can't have children. Or the children you have turn out differently than you But there is no room, no space to acknowledge it. You don't get the job, someone else gets the job, the world moves on. You're begging, you're shouting in the wind for someone to acknowledge it. Asking the world. Does anyone else see what just happened? My dream just died. And the cruelty is not simply that the answer comes back, no, no one's listening, buddy. The cruelty is that no answer comes back at all, as if the universe does not even acknowledge that you just lost something. Some of us are in marriages where we face disappointment on a regular basis. And part of the pain is acknowledging the disappointment. The marriage you entered into is not how things turned out. The person you married is not what you thought you signed up for. And part of the pain is both that reality and coming to terms with that reality. Friendships, relationships. Some of you thought at this point in your life, you would have the kinds of friendships and companions that would be your lifelong friendships. And you look around you and you think, no one in my world knows me. I work with these people. I live with these people. Some of these people I call friends and sometimes best friends. And yet I feel alone and estranged in this world. And so the the disappointment is the expectation of community and the reality of community health our bodies become things different than we expected they become rounder older sicker more wounded more injured than we thought oldness and aging comes with this reality in spades disease and injury Some of the disappointments some people feel is the disappointment parents have for how their children turned out. And the entire life of the relationship between children and parents are often brokered simply through this nexus of expectation and disappointment. Some of you parents in the room bear this reality all the time the expectations and the disappointments you're already beginning to feel with your children even though you know you shouldn't feel those things. But it can also cut the other way. My mom once confessed to me that her greatest fear in life was that her children would look at her as a disappointment. I imagine one of the most extraordinary forms of ongoing disappointment are for those of you in the room who hunger and fight for justice that you believe the Reverend Dr. King when he said, the moral arc of the universe, though it's slow, bends towards justice. And you're wondering, when are we going to see this justice? You think about the history of the black freedom struggle in this country, the justice that has gathered and animated that community, the fight for justice by the giving of lives. The sense that justice always seems around another corner. I imagine for a lot of us in this room, the site of our greatest disappointment is the church itself. That we seem to have been promised that in this world, you will have trouble. But Christ saying to you, take heart, I have overcome this world and part of the overcoming is in the church itself. The promise and the expectation and the hope of that met with the reality of this: that every time you go there, the one thing you can guarantee to see is sinful and broken people. And the other, the utter mental disconnect between the promises of what the church is in the New Testament and what the church is on the corner. I imagine that the large swaths of Christians leaving the church these days is simply the control and the power of that set of disappointments. What does Jesus do with Judas's disappointment? Well, we know what Judas does. In one of the most disturbing scenes in the Bible, Judas takes the money in betrayal of Jesus for whatever reasons. We know can imagine disappointment being part of the complex of reasons, part of what's floating in the air for him. He takes it recognizes his disappointment with Jesus, recognizes his disappointment with his life, that disappointment is multiplied when he realizes that Jesus is probably the chosen one, that he has made a tremendous mistake, and this disappointment drives him to depression and then to suicide. Now, I want to be clear. I don't think there is any clear relationship between depression, and suicide, just like there's no clear relationship between disappointment and betrayal. These relationships, I imagine, are inscrutable. We don't know them, but we often know they float in the same water. So what Judas does with his disappointment is what Judas does. He betrays Jesus and then kills himself. That the scripture is clear about. What does Jesus do with Judas and his disappointment? What does Jesus do with our disappointments and the betrayals that come with them? I want to say that the good news of the gospel of Christ is this. That Jesus sees our disappointments, he acknowledges them, and then he takes them into his own life. There's a scene from John chapter 13 that we don't have a lot of time to look at, but it's the scene right before the betrayal where Jesus says to Judas, what you're about to do, do it quickly. He sees the disappointment. He sees where it's leading. He says, what you're about to do, do it quickly. To understand what Jesus is saying there and doing there, contrast it with what he's not saying. And not doing he, He's not saying to Judas, memorable of a passage in the Old Testament, "Dude, your sin creeps at the door. Get hold of it before it takes care, takes advantage, takes over you." He, he doesn't say, "Don't do it." Clearly Jesus could have said, "I know what's about to happen. Choose another path." He does, he's, he's not there to explain away Judas's disappointment. Nor does Jesus take the power of being the second person of the Trinity and stop Judas from doing it. He neither tries to talk him out of it, nor does he overpower him from it. He says, I see what's happening here. You're incredibly disappointed. And your disappointment is directed squarely at me. I see that. And I see where it's leading you. Jesus acknowledges it. He doesn't try to explain it away. He doesn't try to rationalize it. He says, I see your disappointment. Do what you need to do. A few years ago, I had a friend named Laurel, and Laurel was one of these angelic figures that comes upon our life every once in a while. You just think, how does this person even exist? The kindness and the gentleness and the charisma of a person like that. And I, like a lot of people, were just we wanted to be around Laurel. Well, Laurel took it upon me and others to mentor and disciple us. And it went on like this for years, and she became one of my closest friends. At some point, something seemed to shift, at least from my perspective. But Laurel seemed to have less time for me. She seemed to be less aware of my needs. She seemed to anticipate my pains less often. She played less of a role. And I did what I do, which is to, as much as I could, passively, aggressively respond to her by being as mean as I could, of not returning her calls, of answering her questions as shortly and as curtly as I could. I tried to be as mean as I could to indicate how hurt I was. And and this went on for months. Finally, she asked me to sit down, and she said to me, Jonathan, I know you're disappointed in me. I know uh, I've hurt you. I've I know you've expected different things of our friendship, and I'm sorry. And she took out of the back of her car a bucket of water and some soap. She got on her knees, took off my shoes, and washed my feet. What Laurel did not try to do is defend herself. She did not try to argue with why it was not her fault. She acknowledged the disappointment and took it into her own life. I think that is a tiny, tiny glimpse of what Jesus does with Judas. He does not try to explain it. He does not try to stop it. He recognizes the disappointment and its controlling power. And what Jesus does with Judas is draw Judas into his life. He acknowledges it and he makes it. Something better than Judas could have imagined. Perhaps the greatest theologian of the 20th century uh, is Karl Barth and his writing partner um, von Kirschbaum. They wrote what we describe now as maybe the most important systematic work of theology in the 20th century, the Church Dogmatics, which is 20 vo- i mean, 12 volumes. The Church Dogmatics is written on these kind of large print parts where. Bart and Vern Shishbaum talk about all the things that God is about, and then there's these tiny little parts with super tiny font where they get into the details of everything. The longest part of this small print section is where they talk about Judas. I want to pull up this passage. It's a quick one. This is what they write. Judas' election excels and outshines and controls and directs his rejection. They're talking about the dynamic between Judas' rejection of God and God's mutual rejection of Judas and the fact that God elects and claims and saves Judas. Judas' election excels and outshines and controls and directs his rejection. Not just partly, but wholly. wholly. Not just relatively, but absolutely, and this is not because it was not really a serious rejection; it is just because it is so serious. This very man who is wholly rejected is elect. This is Bart and von Kuschbaum trying to think out the logic of the gospel that we think about the logic of the gospel and who is saved, not in terms of those who are most easy to save, those who are most easy to be around, those actions that are most beautiful and truthful and good, but we understand the gospel by what the gospel absorbs into its life at its most despicable, at its ugliest, at its meanest, at its most intolerable. And the logic of the gospel for Bart and von Kuschbaum is that insofar as God saves anyone, God can save everyone. That one person, that even, right, a Judas, that God brings this person into God's life, indicates the salvific power of Christ's claim, as Paul says, that my power is made perfect in your weakness, right? That in your weakness is the power of the gospel displayed. It's not in the times that you are doing well. It's not the times you enter most fully into the gospel versus lurking. It's not the times when your life exudes a holiness. It's precisely in the other times. Of the times when disappointment takes over and controls your life. And out of that disappointment that you act violently towards the world. It's at that moment that the gospel shines forth good news of the kingdom of God, of the gospel of Christ, is this, that God sees our disappointments and that he takes them into his own life. And by allowing those disappointments to inhabit the crucifixion, to inhabit the life of Christ, then it is drawn then also into the conclusion of that very story. Which is the story of the resurrection. Let us pray. God, we confess that we have disappointments. We confess that those disappointments are directed oftentimes towards you, both you as a person, second person of the Trinity. You, as Jesus Christ. We also acknowledge that our disappointments are to you, Jesus, as God. That our lives with you, God, have not often turned out like we thought they would. We confess that in this disappointment with you, Jesus Christ, you, the man God, that we have often acted in betrayal of you and ourselves and the world. But we also confess you as Lord, you of cross and resurrection. And so in confessing so, God, would you draw us into your life, draw us to your cross, receive our disappointments, and save us from ourselves. In the name of Christ, amen.